I wanted to uh, begin this morning by showing you a, a cartoon that I came across by Henry Wall. So if we can put that up here, Mark. It, uh, this, this cartoon dates from 1875, so it's not like Garfield or, you know, Dilbert Comics cartoons today, but, but 1875. Um, and as you can see, it, it portrays a scene where a, a, uh, a farming family from Kansas has been overrun by these giant grasshoppers. So you've got grasshoppers that are stealing you know, the seeds and the wheat and the beans and even one with a, <laughs> the uh, bag marked greenbacks. You got a grasshopper stealing money there. Um, you got one grasshopper fighting the, the farmer himself and appears to be winning. And then uh, there's kind of one grasshopper in the back. I don't know if it's a mule or a horse or what, but driving it. And then, of course, one taking a picture of it all down here in the corner. That kind of was, I don't know, <laughs> I found that one uh, more humorous than the rest of it, I guess. But, um, but you know, that cartoon, it, 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 it might elicit some laughs from us, right, when we, when we look at that type of thing. But I think it becomes more serious when... I tell you that this was drawn in response to the great locust plague of 1874, a year before this. That July, locust hordes from the Rocky Mountains descended upon the Great Plains and caused damage in today's money equivalent of over $5 billion. Some uh, two million square miles were affected by these locusts. It's estimated that there were upwards of 12.5 trillion locusts during this particular plague. I mean, that number we can't even fathom. 12.5 trillion. Uh, here's a description of the event that I came across. One person writes and says, In some cases, the locusts blocked the sun for up to six hours. They were able to breed quickly due, it, due to it being hot and dry during the spring and summer. The locust swarms would pile up to over a foot high and ate crops, trees, leaves, grass, wool off of sheep, <laughs> harnesses on horses, paint from wagons, and pitchfork handles. I mean, this is serious. The locusts ate for several days by eating from the fields and trees and moved to eating food from inside the farmers' homes. Carpets and clothes were torn apart by the locusts in the process. Can we even imagine that? I mean, this is incredible. The, and a true story, right? I'm recording, I'm, I'm, I'm reciting history as it happened from 1874. I mean, these locusts weren't just a nuisance. They threatened people's very existence due to the destruction they caused. Now, because of insecticides today, we don't fear that, that type of a threat anymore. But still in some parts of the world today, and for much of world history, things like that weren't all that uncommon. Things like that happened throughout history, not just in 1874. For example, turn with me, if, if you're not still there, to the book of Joel in the Old Testament. It starts on page 760 in the Pew Bibles. 
Joel is, is one of the minor prophets. The, his, the book is only three chapters long. But the background for the message of Joel is a devastating locust invasion, perhaps much like the one that happened in our own country in 1874. Now, now, as we get into things this morning, I want to draw attention to the event which is actually the theological focal point of the entire book. It's written in response to a locust plague, but the theological focal point of Joel's book is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. This is an event about which many of the Old Testament prophets speak. It is, it is the prophesied time in which God himself would come to earth and make all things right. In which he would come to earth and judge things as he finds them. And as we're going to see this morning, that is both good news and terrifying news all at the same time. And, and we'll talk about why that is the case. It's why sometimes in the Bible, the day of the Lord is spoken of as a warning. And at other times, it's spoken of with great hope. And so we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit as we go. But, but with the intention of pointing toward that day, pointing toward the day of the Lord, Joel begins his book by reminding the people of a great locust plague, as if they needed much reminding, right? If you live through something like, like what that cartoon was portraying, you probably don't need to be reminded of that. And I think the same is, is the one that Joel references here. In, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we we see that this plague of locusts, which took place, was so noteworthy it was going to be told from generation to generation. I mean, this was an event <laughs> that could not be forgotten. And listen to the description of it in verse 4 of chapter 1. Joel writes and says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Kind of sounds like the description we read, moving from crops to trees to wool on sheep, you know, down to the pitchfork handle, right? It's like, man, this is, this is an event. And, and the impact of such an event would have been felt by everyone. And so Joel went on in verses 5 through 12, and he highlights three specific groups and how they were affected. In, in verses 5 through 7, uh, the drunkards are mourning because the grapevines are destroyed. If the grapevines are destroyed, there's no, no wine that can be made with which to make themselves drunk again. So the drunkards are mourning over this locust plague that took place. Uh, verses 8 through 10, the priests are mourning because the, the grain, the drink offerings have, have just stopped. People had no crops. They had no oil or wine to bring to God as an offering. And so this meant that not only was God not worshiped through those offerings, but, but the portion of those offerings that was given to the priests to have their own needs met, that ceased as well. So the locusts had eaten everything. There was, there was nothing remaining to give to God or to the priests. So the priests are in mourning over both of those things. And then in, in verses 11 and 12, the, the farmers themselves are mourning because not only is their food source gone, but, but their, their way of life, their, their ability to earn an income has, has just been completely destroyed by these locusts. It, it was 
it was devastating in its effect. And again, not, not something that was just a nuisance, but threatened, I'm sure, their, uh, the people's very way of life, their very existence. And so I think we can, can and should ask the question, what's the proper response in the face of an event like that? When, when catastrophe happens, how ought we react to that? And what we see in, in verses 13 and 14 is what Joel leads us to do first is to lament. The, the people were called to, to put on sackcloth and fast and, and come before God in the temple and to lament the situation that had taken place. That's the first response, not, not explanation, not anger, not assigning the blame, not, not providing solutions to fix the problem, lamenting, honestly looking at the situation and mourning what is sad about it and, and coming before the sovereign God who sits enthroned above all things. That was what Joel called the people to do first, lament. Now, some commentators will state that this locust invasion was a direct judgment from God upon the sins of the people. And while God's people were sinful and, and God does judge sin, there's no doubt about those two things, we're given nothing in this chapter to firmly make that connection. No sins are mentioned in connection with this locust plague. Now, drunkards are highlighted, but, but again, it's, it, it was only to note the impact of the locusts upon them. So the terrible locust invasion which took place is not explained by God in this chapter, or in this book, really. And, and rather than immediately seek to give an explanation, Joel calls for lamenting over what took place. He said, Let, let's start there. And I think, we ought to, I think we ought to pause for a moment and consider that we in our Western culture today are typically not good at this. We're, we're just not. I mean, how often when we face a, face a catastrophe of some kind do we, do we go straight to explanation or anger or assigning the blame or, or fixing the problem or, or whatever the case? I mean, I mean, you think about it, it could be damaging weather events or, or things with animals like this. It could be mass shootings. It, yeah, I mean, any, any accident which causes harm and hardship how often do we truly take time to lament with those who are affected before we give any other response? In our always-on world of cable news and social media, we rarely give our ourselves time to lament before we respond in other ways. But as Christians, I think there's two main reasons that we should lead with lament. There's a reason Joel says this first. And I think first it's because there's always people involved, right? In every heartbreaking situation, there is a person or people who are directly impacted. And, and if we focus exclusively on the situation, we neglect the person who's 
whose soul is, will continue to exist for the rest of eternity long after the present situation has passed and been dealt with. Lamenting nourishes empathy for people and compassion and, and love, which all of that has its source in God and which we are called to have towards others. If we're going to respond to people as God would, lamenting leads us there. And so we ought to start with lamenting. So it's first because there's people involved. And then second, lamenting humbles us before our sovereign creator. It, it opens our ears to his words for us. So, so rather than immediately proclaiming ourselves to be judge or fixer, or immediately getting angry, we come before God lamenting, and as we do that, we, we then seek his understanding regarding whatever the situation is. Lamenting leads us to that. It leads us to humility before God, which will then allow us to rightly reflect. When we've lamented with people who are involved, and when we've been brought to that place of humility by lamenting, then we can rightly reflect on the situation. And, and this is what happens in the rest of chapter one. Joel looked at the devastation caused by that locust plague, and after calling the people to lament, he then urged them to consider how that event revealed something about the upcoming day of the Lord. For as bad as that locust invasion was, it was going to be nothing compared to the day that was drawing near. And he doesn't say this to downplay the destruction caused by the locusts. It's not like, ah, oh, that was no big deal. It was a big deal. But what Joel is doing is he's shining light on what lie ahead on that forthcoming day, the day of the Lord. You know, for as much as a person would want to avoid a, another locust plague like they went through, they ought to desire even more so to avoid the judgment upon sin which is going to take place on the day of the Lord. And so, so before we move into chapter 2, again, just want to point out one more time that this reflection upon the day of the Lord came after the call to lament. It wasn't a destructive event immediately followed by going to the street corner and writing repent on a cardboard sign and holding it up for everybody to see. Those two weren't one right after the other. Or in our day and age, you know, posting Bible verses calling for repentance on social media. We don't go to the street corner anymore, right? We, we do it that way. But truly lamenting the pain and loss that people experienced came before that public theological reflection. And so I, I think we do well to remember that as we seek to make disciples of Jesus. We do reflect theologically, and that's what happens in chapter 2 after the lamenting has taken place. Joel launches into that. He talks about the day of the Lord. Now, now because Joel continues to use language like you would use to describe a locust invasion, there's, there's some that would say, well, he's still talking about that past event in chapter 2. But, but others would say, and, and I would agree with this, that, that chapter 2 isn't looking back anymore, but now it's looking forward 
to a near-term day of the Lord-like event. Okay, Joel talks about an army that will soon invade the land, much in the same way that the locusts did previously. And, and the primary reason I think he's now looking forward and talking about something different is he's, he's talking about a human army, especially seen in verse 2. So let me read Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Joel writes and says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on the holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. So toward the end, or the middle of verse 2, he says a great and powerful people. That's why I would say especially he's not talking about locusts anymore. He's talking about something different. Uh, later on in chapter 2, Joel talks about God removing the northerner far from you. And we know that when Babylon invaded God's people in Jerusalem, they came from the north. And so what Joel is doing I would say he's, he's using the recent invasion of locusts to give imagery to a forthcoming invasion of, by the Babylonians. But while the locust invasion wasn't said to be in response to the people's sin, it's different when it comes to this invading army. So when you look down in chapter 2 at verses 12 through 17, the, the, there's the call to not just fast and weep and lament, but to also return to the Lord your God. Returning to God implies the people have left, right? You can't return if you didn't go somewhere. Return to God in repentance. The, the whole point of Joel talking about the day of the Lord before it takes place is to urge the people to return to God, repent of their sin while there's still time, right? Even, even though God's judgment upon sin is certainly coming, it wasn't there yet, and so there was still time to be humble before God and seek forgiveness for sin. Now, if we think about that, if, if our God were a God of forgiveness but not justice, then there'd be no need to fear, right? If he's not just, then we don't have to worry about judgment upon sin. But because he is just, at the beginning of chapter 2, Joel sounds the alarm, right? He, he blows the trumpet. Right? God is just. There is judgment coming. He, he calls for trembling in light of the just God who will execute just judgment on the day of the Lord. Or God is just. And then conversely, the other side of that, if, if God were a God of justice but not forgiveness, then there'd be no point in returning to the Lord either. I mean, if he's not forgiving, why repent? Why, why turn back to him? I mean, that, that would be futile. We might as well just go on our way and squeeze all we can out of this life before judgment comes. I mean, what would be the point? But because God is forgiving, Joel calls the people to return to God and, and rend their hearts is the phrase he uses. In other words, have genuine repentance, not just outward actions that look repentant, but truly come to God in repentance, seeking forgiveness. That's, that's what Joel is calling the people to. 
God is a just God who is bringing judgment, but yet Joel says there's time and so repent. And when the people return to God in that repentant attitude, they receive the promises that are written in verses 18 through 32, the rest of chapter 2. God, God brings salvation to them. Salvation from that forthcoming judgment on the day of the Lord. And once again, Joel, Joel plays on the imagery of an invading locust swarm to talk about how salvation from the Lord is like green pastures and trees bearing fruit and threshing floors full of grain and vats overflowing with wine and oil. That would not have been the picture in the face of a locust invasion, right? But if you were spared from a locust invasion, it would be things like that. And so Joel is using that picture to talk about the day of the Lord and say repentance will lead to that blessing, that protection, salvation from the judgment that's coming. And you know, like we talked about uh, with the remnant in the book of Micah a few weeks back, those who repent will be brought through the judgment. They, They will persevere. They will see God's blessing once again. And, and that happened with the Babylonians when the Babylonians invaded. God's people were sent into exile, but there were those who, who held fast to God and repented and they were brought back. There was a remnant who returned to the land. And, and just like we talked about with that remnant in Micah, the promise is not just for the Jews then, but for all people. And, and Joel makes this direct connection in verses 28 through 32. These are probably, unquestionably, the most famous verses in the book of Joel that I'm going to read. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So Joel talks about this time that's coming when God's spirit would be available to all people. Time was coming when not just Jews, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. And so when we think about this Babylonian invasion, God would protect his people through the exile. And he would bring them back to the promised land. And they would rebuild the temple and everything would be set for Jesus to come and open the doors of salvation to all people who would accept him. And and that reality was highlighted on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to indwell Jesus' followers and they were given the ability to speak to all nations and languages of people who were gathered there. And and Peter rightly observed what took place on that day, and he connected it to this prophecy in Joel. Peter said, Joel talked about this day that was coming. It's in Acts chapter 2, if you want to read that story. 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's been opened to everyone. Saved from what? What, what, are, what? What's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord being saved from? It's the final, ultimate day of the Lord, which is coming. And, and that's what Joel focuses on in chapter 3 then. So chapter 1, he's, he's focusing on the past locust invasion and how it points ahead to the day of the Lord. In chapter 2, he's focusing on the soon-to-come Babylonian invasion and how it points ahead to the day of the Lord. And then in chapter 3, his focus is on the day of the Lord. This will be the day when Jesus returns to the earth and he gives final judgment upon sin. Joel talks about the nations of the world being gathered together in order to receive from Jesus what their actions deserve. And in case we are tempted to soften the message of judgment, we have to resist that temptation. I mean, Joel speaks of that day as the nations gathering together for war against Jesus. That's not a soft term. It, it will be war. And the nations will prepare themselves. They, they will consecrate themselves. They will turn their farming implements into weapons. I mean, they will come out against Jesus, and Jesus will bring his warriors with him, and the two sides will meet in the valley of Jehoshaphat, as we see in chapter 3. It's mentioned in verse 2, and it's mentioned in verse 12. And, and the temptation is to say, okay, well, where, where's this valley? Where's this valley of Jehoshaphat? Where's this going to take place? And it's not that that's not a good question, but that's not the best question. The best question to ask is, what does that name mean? Why is it called the valley of Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat in Hebrew means the Lord judges. This valley in verse 14 of chapter 3 twice is called the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment upon sin. So regardless of where the actual valley is, we know what will take place there. It will be that judgment. Just as the sun and moon and stars were darkened with the invasion of the locust plague, so the sun and moon and stars will be darkened on this ultimate day of the Lord. He will, he will roar from Zion, as Joel says. His just judgment upon sin will be meted out. I mean, verse 16 tells us that, that the heavens and the earth will quake at this roaring. Um, it's something which ought to rightly instill fear in us, shouldn't it? I mean, when we set ourselves up against God, when that's a decision that a person makes, they will face him as their foe. They will be lined up for war against him, and, and that, that should be something that's fearful. The day of the Lord is not going to be a pleasant day for that army that gathers against Jesus. It just won't be. But, I said earlier how the day of the Lord is either a warning or a hope, but for those who've repented and returned to God, the outcome is completely different. And we see that in the last half of verse 16, right? The Lord's a refuge to his people. He's a stronghold to his people. And then one more time in verses 17 through 21, 
salvation from God is pictured in terms of dripping sweet wine and hills flowing with milk and streams filled with water. I think that's meant to remind us of the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. It will be an existence of dwelling with the Lord forever. For those who repent and return to God, that is the outcome of the day of the Lord. That'll be a, a joyful, satisfying, eternal reality when we think about that. It's why those who've found salvation in Jesus look ahead to the day of the Lord and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Uh, we're ready for that. Our, our hope is in that day. And so we desire and we call for him to come quickly. So the book of Joel, the, the, the phrase that comes up again and again is the day of the Lord the day of the Lord. And it's spoken of in Joel, both as a warning and both as a cause for hope. He spells out clearly, I think, why that is the case, why both of those are true. And I think the question we ought to ask ourselves in light of Joel's book is, do I need to receive Joel's message as one of warning or one of hope? Which way do I need to hear it? If you're here this morning and, and you've not returned to the Lord, not returned by genuinely repenting of sin before God, then I urge you to hear the warning regarding the day of the Lord. Joel cared about his people too much to sugarcoat his warning. I mean, he did not sugarcoat it. And I want to show care by to each of us here today by, by not sugarcoating the warning as well. It, it is a warning Twice, Joel calls the day of the Lord great and awesome. For those unrepentant before God, it will be great and awesome, but, but not in a pleasant way. God's just judgment upon sin will be poured out on that day. Uh, the book of Revelation gives further imagery to this day that's coming, the day of the Lord. Revelation speaks of an army which gathers to fight against Jesus and that army then being cast into the lake of fire for eternity. If an invasion of 12.5 trillion locusts sounds bad, the lake of fire will be much worse. Much worse. Those who reject Jesus and his work on the cross and seek an existence separate from him and opposed to him will receive what they desire. They will be given that, but, but it will be an existence void of all joy and blessing, an existence of pain and suffering. But we're given a warning that that day has not come just yet. And so the warning allows us to respond. And if you're in that place this morning, please hear the call of God through Joel once again. I'll read chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Return to God with all your heart. That's the call. That is the call. And there's still time. I don't know how much time. 
but there's still time right now. So I would encourage you to hear the warning and hear the call that comes with it because the moment will come when the day of the Lord arrives and there will be no more time for repentance. So if you've not done that, hear the warning today. And for those who have returned to the Lord in humble repentance, hear the hope in Joel's words. There's incredible hope there. All who call upon Jesus are saved. Everyone, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and will find refuge in him. The day of the Lord will end in blessing for those who are in Jesus. So whether we face a plague of locusts or more likely other trials in this life, let's hold fast to that promise that this day is coming when all will be made right. Everything will be put right. In all three chapters, Joel states that this day is near. Is near. We can find rest in the certainty of that. And at the same time, as we put our hope in, in this day of the Lord and as we rest in the certainty of it, let's call out to others. Let's call others out of judgment and into this hope that we have. And again, this message is best received when we truly lament with a person before speaking about the judgment to come. I mean, the warning needs to be given, no doubt. But when we mourn with those who mourn, when we lament, then we are given greater opportunity to speak about this coming day of the Lord. An opportunity that will hopefully find it uh, more, they'll be more receptive to the warning. So, so like Joel did with the locust invasion, he saw what took place, he lamented over what took place, he called others to lament with him, and then he looked ahead and, say, and said, there's this other day coming, and let's make sure we're ready for it. So like Joel did, may, may we see opportunities in our daily life for that as well. Opportunities to lovingly and clearly draw people's attention to the day that is coming. May God give us his eyes and his ears and his compassion to respond to hardship like Joel did here. The great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. We know that with certainty. So let's be ready. Let's be ready for it. Let's be hopeful as we wait. And let's do what we can to love others so that they might be open to the call for repentance. To not have to face the judgment, but to repent before God and call out to him. And then Joel says, and Peter emphasized on the day of Pentecost, that they would be saved. Let's stand together. Let's come before God. And again, whether we need to hear the warning this morning or whether we need to hear the hope this morning, Let's come before him in humility. Father, as we, as we gather here, we, we look to you. I'm grateful that, that you've given us this message through Joel, that you remind us that you are both a just and a forgiving God. And so God, would you help us to rightly receive Joel's words this morning, whether we need to hear the warning, whether we need to be reminded of our hope, 
May those words sink deep within us, God. I give you praise that you are both, that you are both just and that you are forgiving. God, I, we know that the only reason we can experience hope and salvation is because you took our punishment. You took that judgment being poured out upon yourself. And we recognize that this morning. We are grateful for it. We love you for it. God, help us to never forget that. If not for you, then that day would be awful for us. But because of you, we can rest in the stronghold that you are. We can rest in our salvation in you, and we're so thankful. God, as we look to you now and continue singing our praises to you, and as we reflect upon you the rest of our day and throughout our week, would you remind us of that? God, would you help us to be modern-day Joels? God, we want people to find hope in you and not have to face judgment for sin. God, would you, would you guide us in that? Open our hearts more and more to that, that we would reach out to those in need. God, we give you the praise this morning. We give you the glory and the honor. And we pray this in your name. Amen.